0: Good morning. It occurs to me that Bill probably has a whole list of things that he brings, like a singing bowl loud enough for everyone to hear. So thanks, Brooke, for the little but effective singing bowl. Um, And he also has Velcro on the back of his phone so that his his slides actually, it sticks up here. Those are the little things that he knows to do. And for those of you who are visiting, I am kind of also a, I, I stand in sometimes when Bill is out of town, so I'm glad you're here. Um, But okay, let's begin. So happy Sunday, and as we usually do, I want to start off by saying no matter who you are or where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I'm grateful to y'all, and I'm grateful to Bill and for the relationship that we've all gotten to create with him, how he's supported us in building a community of curious and compassionate and generous people. Hello to any of you guys who are watching virtually in in whatever pajamas you're wearing. You're welcome here. (laughs) I had a text from Bill yesterday. He's on a pilgrimage with Sherry, and he is writing a blog, and it's posted on the website under the heading of his pilgrimage. So if you follow along with his writing, you'll know what they're up to every day. He said it's so far been very rich and full and lots of Monks singing, and um, he said he met a woman older than God yesterday, so. But we knew it was a woman who gave birth to God anyway, right? Um, Just kidding. So today, I am taking on a really light subject, the nature of the soul. There'll be some savings behind the curtains later. As long as there have been humans, we have evidence of stories. And as long as there have been stories, there have been questions about mystery, about what's beyond us, and what role do we play in this great mystery? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? Where are we going? These are ancient questions, and they remain unanswered. Yet, philosophers and theologians persist. We keep asking these questions. And talking about the soul is a bit like talking about love. It's abstract, it's personal, and not something we can grasp onto. But we're pretty sure we've experienced it in some form or another, and we try to point at it with words. Part of its nature, though, is to remain undefinable, mysterious. It's a bit of a shapeshifter. It takes on the sort of form of the container like water. It is thought that early humans existed in what we might call a compact cosmology. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, where the inner worlds and the outer worlds were more closely aligned. There's an intimacy between the human world and the natural world, and the one that man was continuing to create. Directions were by the stars, or by the bank of oak trees, or by the features on the land. It's hard for us to imagine not having Siri, let alone a, a physical map. So my thought is maybe Siri is, contains all the wisdom of the compact cosmology in her small brain, uh, or very, very large brain, I should say. Uh, she seems to know where everything is without looking. So uh, from early man to indigenous people like the Australian Aboriginals and the Native Americans, there was a necessary reliance, respect, and even awe for the natural world. In the Lakota language, a Native American tribe, there is no word for I or mine. There's no ownership. It's considered an incorporative language, an integrated language. In these earlier cultures, the natural world was a soulful presence to coexist with and be instructed by, not a collection of resources to be used for personal gain. Of course, there was a lot early man likely didn't know, about infinity, about black holes, about even around Earth. But as humans got more organized, we also got more institutionalized and we got distanced from the natural world. We moved much of our learning indoors. And my spiritual lineage for today are a whole bunch of gifted and intelligent men of European descent. This is unusual for me. I usually have women, people of color, native peoples, so these, are, these voices have inspired me this week, and these are the ones who showed up for this talk. <laughs> to some degree, I'm questioning their conclusions, and to another, I'm grateful for the evolution of thought that contributes to continued growth. Plato quickly became one of the most influential thinkers of his time. In fact, 20th century philosopher said that uh, Alfred North Whitehead said, all of philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. In his view, the soul was the explicit property of living beings, most developed in humans by way of emotion, perception, and longing. By the time Plato came on the scene, the idea of an immortal soul had taken hold. He determined it was something other than a physical form, capable of thinking and feeling beyond the body, always striving toward what he called the good. He thought a human soul couldn't attain the highest good without an intermediary. In this imagined portrait of him, this is from Raphael's School of Athens. It's a large portrait with many thought leaders of the time, with Plato and Aristotle at the center. So Plato is pointing up to imply that the higher, truer reality overshadows this world, that we ought to try to attain this otherworldly reality through pursuit of truth and beauty. This is what he said was the soul's work. In his symposium, he wrote that Eros, who was neither God nor man... But some of both was the farrier between the heavens and the earth. Eros, or love, was the means through which our souls could attain the highest good. It is no surprise, then, that Christians, or early Christians, influenced heavily by Greek society, overlaid this idea onto Jesus as a farrier between God and man. And Jesus became necessary in many ways, according to the church, to reach heaven to purify our soul, or to achieve life eternal. The problem with this thinking, however, is that it keeps God out there and detaches the soul from the body. The antithesis, I think, of what Jesus actually intended. It is dualistic thinking. We are here, God is out there, the soul is out there, our bodies are here. After Plato comes Aristotle, who was a student, this is is not a direct, There are many people between Plato and Aristotle. There are many people between all of the folks I'm talking about. But Aristotle was directly influenced by Plato. He was of his school. And though he didn't believe that matter and spirit were separate, reality, he said, is what we can see and touch. Note his hand is pointing down. So our experience is based on our earthly experience. And that's all we can really know. So if we can touch the body, we can touch the soul. And it is the soul, he said, that provides the potential for life. He uses the comparison of the wax and seal. This is from a translation of his writing. We don't need to ask about the wax and the seal because it's obvious in what sense they are one and in what sense they are not one. The wax and the seal are not two separate things, but we can distinguish them in thought. The seal is the shape that is imprinted in the wax and makes it the kind of waxen thing that it is. So they are one and that they are inseparable, and they are not two substances, but one inherent in the other. A little less dualistic, and though body and soul were one, he separated the soul into two. This is beginning to sound a little bit like Voldemort and Harry Potter. Not that I'm saying Aristotle is Voldemort, but, um, <laughs> but he, he had the idea that the soul was separated into rational and irrational, further dividing the soul into uh, the vegetative and the appetitive, in other words, animistic or living and non-living. Think of a mountain versus a leopard. If you're doing the math as I go, so far our soul has been divided into four. So again, it's a bit of a stance of dualism where uh, there's this thing called the body and soul, but it's divided into all of these parts. Much, much later than Aristotle came René Descartes. He thought the soul was located in the pineal gland deep inside of our brains which he wrongly thought was unique to humans. He didn't think animals had a pineal gland. Cartesian dualism deepened mind-body separation, which furthered the division between the sacred and the profane, the ordinary and the extraordinary, and science and religion. His most famous saying was, I think, therefore I am. I bet we've all heard that one, or cogito ergo sum. To perfect the soul, humans had to ascend out of the body. I think we're finally coming, so 400 years later maybe, we're coming around to this idea that maybe there's a hidden unity in the heart of the the universe that we might be starting to realize the limitations of Cartesian dualism. Last week, I talked about communion as a principle of the universe, and that principle exists in every aspect of life, including us. We need to unify the soul and see it as an integral part of the collective whole. Mystics, of course, have known this forever. It would take a dominant academic culture another 300 years after Descartes to start talking about holism. Darwin conceived of an evolutionary theory where all of life evolved from a single organism. Carl Jung conceived of a collective unconscious where we all dream in a common symbolic language. And Owen Barfield, a 20th century philosopher said, our soul originates from a singular clear lake of meaning. Finally, in the late 20th century, ecotheologian and cultural historian Thomas Berry helped us to imagine the soul as an integrated thing. He actually is the greatest mentor of someone who is fast becoming a mentor to me, Brian Swim, the cosmologist that I'm learning from in my PhD. So Berry writes that the soul is fundamentally a biological concept defined as the primary organizing, sustaining, and guiding principle of a living being, and soul craft is the skill needed in shaping the human soul towards its fulfillment in unity with the entire universe. The universe and the human soul find their fulfillment in one another. Soul gives to the multitude of living forms wondrous powers of movement and reproduction, but even more wondrous powers of sensation and emotion. Soul then, in all of its diversity of expression, enables the flowers to bloom in the meadows. It enables all manner of living forms, the birds and the fish, and other living beings to find their way through thousands of miles on their migration journeys back and forth across the continents and in the dark depths of the sea. In short, whatever sustains, creates, or has life is also ensouled. If we can deepen our relationship to this system that sustains us, our personal and spiritual lives are simultaneously enriched. The Plains Indians of North America identified and sacralized their human presence at any moment by offering the sacred pipe to the four directions, then to heaven and to earth. In this manner, they knew where they were. It's how they located themselves in the universe. They knew they were not alone. They knew that wherever they were was at the center of the universe. And remember, there is not a single center of the universe. Wherever we are is the center of the universe. They, once we reject the soul and the non-human world, it's difficult then to sustain the acceptance of soul in the human world. When we remain separate, we can't accept the soul either way. We become separate from each other, and now we need a reorientation process by which we can experience ourselves embedded in this universe while simultaneously growing in consciousness. So much focus has been paid to the soul as a separate form of matter. But with the influence of psychologist and soul activist Francis Weller, I want to throw this notion on its head. I want to say that soul is matter, and it holds us together in the depths so that we may arise out of its ashes, newer and stronger and braver. I want to say that the soul is less of a thing than a journey inward. And if any of you have had children in the last 50 years, you've probably come across this book, Where the Wild Things Are, by Maurice Sendak. Okay, so I'm going to read it to you. Ready for some story time? Milk and cookies, you already got. (laughs) All right. The night Max wore his wolf suit and got into mischief of one kind or another, his mother called him Wild Thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. This happens in my house every day. We don't send to bed without dinner, but the Wild Thing does. That very night in Max's room a forest grew, and grew, and grew, until his ceiling hung with vines, and the walls became the world all around, and an ocean tumbled by with a private boat for Max, and he sailed off through night and day, and in and out of weeks, and almost over a year to where the wild things are. And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared their terrible wars, and gnashed their terrible teeth, and rolled their terrible eyes, and showed their terrible claws. Till Max said, be still, and tamed them with the magic trick of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking. Once, and they were frightened, and called him the most wild thing of all. This does not work with my children when I stare into their eyes keep working <laughs> and made him the king of all wild things and now cried max let the wild rumpus start now stop max said and the wild things and sent the wild things off to bed without their supper and max the king of all wild things was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all Then all around him from far away across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being the king of the wild things. But the wild things said, oh, please don't go. We'll eat you up, we love you so. And Max said, no. The wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. But Max stuck into his private boat and waved goodbye. And sailed back over a year, and in and out of weeks and through a day, and into the night of his very own room, where he found his supper waiting for him. <laughs> and it was still hot. <laughs> Excuse me for just a second. Whatever the soul is, however it can be defined, like the wild things, it refuses to be domesticated holding always this desire for what we call sovereignty and intimacy. Sovereignty is the desire to be alone. Max desired aloneness in order to connect with his wild thing. When he had that time, he danced with his shadow, his fear, his inner wild thing. The shadows feel out of our control at times, gnashing their terrible teeth and rolling their terrible eyes. The cool part, though, is that the soul is as capable of navigating in the dark as it is in the light. Last week, someone reminded me that there is actually no such thing as absolute darkness. Everything is on a continuum of light. Based on the type of eyeball a creature has, it experiences light differently. There are snakes who have infrared or night vision, insects who live in UV gardens. The eyeball adapts to what it needs to see in order to survive. So the soul is like our inner eyeball, capable of night vision. It shows us exactly who we are and what we're dealing with, and it shows us the way home. It's in rites of initiation, something that our culture has kind of lost. Um, There's this dance between aloneness and returning to the village or returning home. Just like Max, when we leave the wild things, we need a community to welcome us back, someone to prepare us a hot meal and a warm bed. Having community validates our experience and gives us a chance to be accountable to our journey. The community is our witness as we grow up. When we enter the process of soul initiation, when we allow it to find its expression, we realize really quickly that it's not just about us, but about experiencing ourselves as part of an integral whole. Have you ever worked a puzzle to get to that last piece and it's missing? Okay, yeah, (laughs) that last piece is important. Soul work is like the last piece of the puzzle. It's a community of vibrant individuals who form a collective. So the marvelous symmetry here is that the soul is a non-dual thing. It is not out there or in here, it's both. It's not alone or communal, it's both. And where the wild things are, Max left his safety net. He took a journey across oceans, he romped with the wild things, and then is even deemed king of the wild things but he returns home. Growing up requires this balance of aloneness and homeness. While psychology keeps this process only about the individual, we miss the point of unifying with the greater whole. We need to know our place in society, our gift to the village, if you will. But we also need to connect with being, being part of the whole cosmos. If we don't feel this connection, we run into meaninglessness. No matter how much we make or do or contribute on an individual level, I don't think we will find a sense of importance unless we become small to what we could call the ego and large to the collective. Think of it this way. If any one of the planets falls out of orbit, it alters the orbit of all other planets. If there's one piece missing of our 1,000-piece puzzle, the puzzle's incomplete. So each piece has a purpose. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it, Bessel van der Kolk writes about how the body stores trauma, no matter how long ago it was. When we cannot trust the soul to take us into trauma, we stay in the darkness, untransformed. In processing the after effects of 9-11 with a group of children whose school was close enough to the fallen buildings to feel the heat and to see bodies falling from them, Vanderkolk asked if they had any wishes about wanting to change what happened. One little boy drew this picture. He drew a tall building with a trampoline at the base. That's what the red arrow is pointing to. He said, if we create buildings with trampolines around them, people will be safe next time they have to jump. This is the resilience of the soul. This little boy knew that there would be danger ahead again, but he drew in the trampoline that catches us as we fall. Untransformed trauma deprives our imagination. This kiddo kept his imagination intact. His soul is restored to the imagination, and it became his safety net. His imagination became his safety net. The danger of psychology that's detached from ritual becomes all about me. Ritual unattached to a broader community becomes all about me. A community untethered to some sort of broader cosmic belonging ultimately dies. And a God not based in cosmic evolutionary reality is only a personal God, one who bends to our needs, worldviews, and images instead of opening up to a broader existence. In short, it's no kind of God at all. So what do we do once we've accepted this invitation of the soul and gone into some of these shadowy spaces? It's not a one-time journey. It can happen nightly in our dreams. Eventually, we must accept the creative act of living from the true self that is molded from the soul. I love this language that is not original to me, but um, someone wrote, we need to decolonize our imagination about who we can be, not just as an individual, but as a species. This is what the soul longs for, to break the implicit rules of expected behavior, to break the unspoken ways we learn to believe or behave. In short, it longs to become a wild thing. I remember once when I was home from college, my mom really wanted me to wear pantyhose to church, this church, and I hated pantyhose. I probably said something like, God doesn't care if I wear pantyhose. I don't actually know many women who like pantyhose, but a lot of us have suffered through them. I don't think they have anything to do with freeing up my soul. (laughs) If you are among the few who like them, then maybe you have a brand you need to share with the rest of us, and Hopefully, I hear spanks are good, I'm I'm not sure. (laughs) Meanwhile, if I wear them, I spend 98% of the time tugging them up and trying not to rip them with a hangnail, right? I think the soul is inviting us to take off our metaphorical pantyhose, the thing we struggle against having to do without it ever really feeling like our true self. Can you imagine? I think I know what's gonna happen after class. A whole bunch of us are gonna rip off pantyhose. (laughs) Sling them on the side of the road. We're going to drive down the throat and be like, whoa, there goes Frida. Oh, there goes Barbara. There goes Pam. (laughs) So I'm fully expecting to see the trash can full of pantyhose if any of you guys are wearing them. (laughs) Guys and gals. It could be anyone. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, the soul is best understood through myth. Take, for example, Jonah and the whale. It's a dark night of the soul type story. I'm going to read it um, from Eugene Peterson's interpretation in the message. The subtext is running away from God. Small little caveat. Josh always said that growing up in his Southern Baptist church when the preacher read from the Old Testament. He knew they'd be here for a while. (laughs) So bear with me. One day long ago, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh. Preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I cannot ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went the other direction, to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish, as far away from God as he could get. But God sent a huge storm at sea, the waves towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors were terrified. They called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything they were carrying overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship to take a nap. He was sound of sleep. The captain came to him and said, What is this, sleeping? Get up. Pray to your God. Maybe your God will see we're in trouble and rescue us. Then the sailors said to one another, Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit on this ship who's responsible for this disaster. So they drew straws. Jonah got the short straw. (laughs) They grilled him, confess, why this disaster? What is your work? Where do you come from? What country? What family? He told them, I am a Hebrew. I worship God, the God of heaven who made sea and land. At that, the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, what on earth have you done? As Jonah talked, the sailors realized he was running away from God. They said to him, what are we going to do with you to get rid of this storm? By the time the sea was wild, totally out of control, and Jonah said, throw me overboard into the sea. Then get the storm to stop. It's all my fault. I'm the cause of the storm. Get rid of me and you'll get rid of it. But no, the men tried rowing back to shore. They made no headway. The storm only got worse and worse, wild and raging. They, ba- they prayed to God, please don't let us drown because of this man's life. And don't blame us for his death. You are God. Do what you think is best. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately, the sea was quieted. The sailors were impressed, no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of God. They worshipped God, offered a sacrifice, and made vows. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. The other week, when Bill and I taught together, we likened this expression of God to the true self. Likewise, I likened the true self to the expression of soul. There are three things so far to learn. From this story, we cannot run away from God, nor from the soul. Sometimes the storm gets worse before it gets better. There are questions we must all face. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what is your work? So Jonah spends time in the darkness of the belly of the whale, grappling. And inevitably there comes a moment when it feels totally out of his control, when he's begging to be released and from the darkness, and he faces his immortality. The story goes on. <laughs> Told you it's long. <laughs> then Jonah prayed to his God from the belly of the fish. He prayed, in deep trouble I prayed. He answered me. From the belly of the grave I cried, help. You heard my cry. You threw me into the ocean's depths, into a watery grave with ocean waves, ocean breakers crashing over me. I said, I've been thrown away, thrown out, out of your sight. I'll never lay eyes again on your holy temple. Ocean gripped me by the throat. The ancient abyss grabbed me and held me tight. My head was tangled in seaweed. At the bottom of the sea where the mountains take root, I was as far down as a body could go. And the gates were slamming shut behind me forever. Yet you pulled me up from that grave alive. Oh, God. My God, when my soul was slipping away, I remembered you, and my prayer got through. Then God spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the seashore. This is a story of transformation, of facing death and choosing life. Francis Weller says soul work is always a flirtation with some kind of death. In the belly of the whale, as far down as he could go, Jonah remembered his true self. It was dark. It was unknown. It was probably scary. It was a journey some of us might be familiar with. But the soul held and returned Jonah to the shore. Well, it vomited shoulder, or Jonah up on the shore. The soul is not always subtle. Here we see Jonah's wife when he comes home. For crying out loud, Jonah, three days late, covered with slime and smelling like fish. And what story have I got to swallow this time? <laughs> yeah, right? Has anyone in here ever done a float, one of those <laughs> saltwater, highly concentrated saltwater floats? It's, um, it's a little, it looks like this. It's a tank, and it opens its giant maw, and you get into it, and you float. And it's so salt-concentrated that you, you, can't, you can't not float. So it, it buoys you there. No matter how much you try, you cannot, like, turn over. You can't, it, it's really kind of cool. And it's like being inside the belly of a whale. You can choose to turn off the light and it is pitch dark. I tried it. Um, Or you can make this kind of bluish purplish light and it's a a little bit sublime. So if you want to know what it's like to be in the belly of a whale, go try this. (laughs) The return from the belly is often vulnerable. Even even though we arrive a little bit more intact, more whole, and often more clear-eyed, we're not sure if the world's ready for us yet. It can show up It's hard to show up as ourselves, and this liminal space between before and after requires tenderness, a kind of threshold. We've taken the small or vast journey to where the wild things are. We've gone to the belly of the whale. We've investigated our gifts, and we've held them gently in our hands like a coal turning to diamond. We're still unsure how to express them, so now what? Think of the soul like the raw marble from which a sculpture emerges. In alchemy, this this raw material is called the prima materia. Listen to this definition, it's quite poetic. Prima materia is a formless primeval substance regarded as the original material of the universe, similar to chaos, quintessence, or ether. Many philosophers have opined that the soul is our prima materia the thing from which we are formed, the essence of our being. When Michelangelo created the Pieta, his prima materia was a block of Carrara marble just quite like this. And over time, he chipped away at it, letting it emerge. He formed the soft folds of fabric, the expression of a weeping Mary holding Jesus in her arms. His rough block of marble became this incredible tension of life and death, and it took him two years So the journey of the soul is not always a short one. I'm going to suggest that your soul has a masterpiece woven into it. It's your essence. It's the truest part of you that wants to be expressed without fear or shame. The possibility for your own pieta exists in you from the very beginning. And this bit of God in us is utterly dependent on us to express itself in the world. Think of it as that tiny bit of creation that expresses itself through you. It's wholly unique and wholly connected. It's both differentiated, so individual, and also unified. It's the last piece of the puzzle, and it's part of the whole puzzle. It knows how to hold the tension between individuation and communion. It wants us to fight for our lives. It longs for truth and vulnerability, and widens our capacity for aliveness. It's trying, I think, to nudge us awake, to get us on the boat, to cross the oceans, to have a wild rumpus, and to return us to the warm supper of our true selves, awakened to our own wild thing. Throw off the pantyhose, ladies. (laughs) This is the part of us that knows loneliness, but it also loves fiercely, it craves truth, and it knows our right to belong. The soul doesn't exactly want to keep us safe, operating under the status quo. It wants us to break open, to grow up, and to move towards more freedom. So here's the invitation. Can we become wild enough to do something that allows itself to dream itself through us, to become a little less secure, and also a little less afraid, a little less bound by unspoken rules and expectations. The soul is okay with not knowing exactly where we're going to land. In system psychology, there's a thought that we operate by a set of rules in our systems, in our families, in our communities, and that those first six or seven rules are unspoken. The ones that say, okay, you're the caregiver in the family. You're the, one, you're the jokester in the family. We aren't assigned these roles at birth, but we just adapt to them. And suddenly we find ourselves in a place where we have to question them. Is this really who I am? Is this really what serves me or serves the true expression of myself? Don't get me wrong. I think structure is good. I think bedtimes for my kids are good. Dinners every night at the same time are good. I think Brooke teases me all the time that my kids when they're 18 are going to still be going to bed at like 7.30. It's 8 o'clock now. But, um, but I, that our, we need that structure, but we also need the freedom within the structure to find the expression of ourself. So the invitation of the soul is to trust that there's something there to catch us, the trampoline at the base of the building, so that when the structure breaks, we have something to catch us or it's there to catch us when we need to break out of the structure. It's our inner mystic. It's the part of us that trusts the suspicion that there just might be an underlying unity to absolutely everything. It beckons us to participate in that. I'm going to end with a poetry benediction. Anybody read David White in here? Yeah, he's a a great poet. He actually was a biologist. And his work in studying the natural world led him to be more of an artist and poet. And he, he has been quoted to say, humans are the only species that don't know how to be themselves. That we observe the world around us and we say, oh, that bird's flying. Let's go build a machine that might help us fly. So in some ways, there's a beautiful tension. We are observing the natural world to take note of it. We're we're observing the natural world to be in awe of it. We're observing the natural world to build consciousness around it. And then we can express that natural world through poetry and art and writing and music. So I love that he's turned his sort of observation nature, his scientific nature, nature into an artist's nature. The poem is called The Fire in the Song. The mouth opens and fills the air with its vibrant shape until the air and the mouth become one shape. And the first word, your own word, spoken from that fire, surprises, burns, grieves you now because you made that pact with the dark presence in your life. He said, if you only stop singing, I'll make you safe. And he repeated the line, I'll make you safe, knowing you would hear it as the comforting sound of a door closed on the fear at last but the darkness slipped under your tongue and became the dim cave, where you sheltered and grew in that small place, too frightened to remember the songs of the world, its impossible notes, and the sweet joy that flew out the door of your wild mouth as you spoke." It's beautiful. So, let's go out there, let the wild rumpus begin. Open your wild mouth and sing your song, And take off the (laughs) pantyhose. Just kidding. Remember, though, that no matter where you go this week, or what songs you sing, or what wild things you encounter, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. I'll be here next week also, and Bill will be back after August 4th.